Hello, New Yorkers. Welcome to the first episode of Thrive with Shirlane McRae, the only podcast dedicated to helping New Yorkers learn more about mental health and thrive. As First Lady of New York City, I'm focused on doing everything I can to help improve the way our city delivers mental health care. Mental health is vital to our ability to enjoy life, to work, contribute to our communities, cope with the normal stresses of life, and have healthy relationships. But maintaining or even improving our mental health is not something we have traditionally talked about. And when we do, we often focus more on the negative aspects of mental health and and not on the positive ways we can help ourselves and others. And that's why we created Thrive NYC, our city's comprehensive mental health plan. We are changing the culture around mental health, providing more services, working to close the gaps, while most importantly, teaching people how to talk about mental health appropriately and with sensitivity. I'm so glad that you're listening today. For our first ever episode, I've asked someone very special to join us. My son Dante is here. Now, Dante just graduated from college in May, and our family is very excited to have him back home in New York for a while. You know, DJ, oh, I called you DJ. <laughs> Dante, <Sorry. laughs> Dante is, is more than a recent college graduate, a scholar, and an athlete. He is also uh, someone who knows a lot about music. Um, He's the guy that you really want to have at your party. DJ D, (laughs) welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. (laughs) I'm really happy to be here. Happy to be able to ask you some questions about Thrive NYC, which you've been telling me about for a long time, but I feel like you could always learn more. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be a good thing to start with, uh, why you took on mental health. Does the topic of mental health feel personal to you? Oh, it is personal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you've heard me talk about uh, what it was like for me growing up uh, as the uh, only black child in all of my classes. Uh, there was, this is the 50s and the okay. 60s, and there was, there was a lot of discrimination, and uh, I, I did have to run home from school um, because of, of bullies at times. Uh, it was not... It was not easy to sit in a classroom where there were children uh, saying really negative things about me, making faces. Um, literally, I had a home economics class. I remember there were these two girls who would, they would, they would, they would um, make their lips really fat mm-hmm. and and flatten their noses um, to make fun of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like all in front of the teacher and other students and everything, and no one ever did anything to mm-hmm. them or said that, you know, they, that they should be disciplined. It was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and being chased home was, um, you know, it's scary mm-hmm. <laughs> because I didn't know what they would do if, if they actually caught me. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I lived close to school and I ran fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they think they just really wanted to scare me. But um, these were brought up a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings that, that you know, I really didn't have anyone to talk to about. Mm-hmm. Um, since nothing 
you know, I think that if I had come home bloodied and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> broken bones, that it would have been different. But, you know, my parents really thought that school was for, we were at that school to get a good education, and mm-hmm. that's what was important. And that is what they, um, they were not uh, communicative mm-hmm. about all the different emotions that we were feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when we've talked about this in the past, you've mentioned that there, was, there obviously wasn't community support. Mm-hmm. And it also sounds like your parents were not there to support you in all the ways that you needed. Yeah, I think, you know, we grew up during a time where children supposed to be seen but not heard. Mm-hmm. I think they grew up the same way, and uh, they were very strict. Uh, they did not really talk to us um, unless it was to give instructions about what to do, where to go, um, how to behave. There was not that, that easy communication that I later experienced with other families. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would have meals at, at dinner or even on holidays and Christmas, and there, it would be total silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a kid, you don't know that things are, are not supposed to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, that was my, my, my norm, my normal, mm-hmm. that, that no one talked and certainly don't talk about emotions. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah. And you're supposed to go to school and, you know, behave mm-hmm. and do what you're supposed to do and and uh, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of communication there wasn't a lot of joy mm-hmm. you know which later led me to believe that my my both of my parents had some kind of uh, depression mm-hmm. you know low level depression i mean obviously they worked hard they they got up and went to work and they 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 loved us very much that was clear that they loved us they cared for us but it wasn't expressed, and and uh, with words, or or hugs, or mm-hmm. in conversation, um, and so mm-hmm. it, it was very difficult to to um, to find a place for all those big feelings that mm-hmm. that little children have when they're living in a tough environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these experiences when you were younger, growing up in this this household where there wasn't that much communication mm-hmm. and it sounds like there's a lot of hostility in the community around you. I mean, how do you think these experiences informed your, your perception of mental health later on? Well, I, I learned early on that that, um, that people, everyone just has a lot going on beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned very early to... to bury my emotions to keep mm-hmm. them down deep um, because that was my protection. Mm-hmm. I, didn't want, I didn't want anyone to see me get uh, perturbed, get upset mm-hmm. because they were calling me names or uh, because of their, um, their negative behavior towards me. I had to be stoic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that wasn't healthy, mm-hmm. but, um, but it, it was a protection. And I learned that other people do the same thing in mm-hmm. different ways and that um, it was necessary for me to be very perceptive mm-hmm. about the people that I met because there are also people who, you know, who smile and they act and then behind your back they would do things. Mm-hmm. So I, I became aware early that, that people have really complicated inner lives mm-hmm. and that you, you never really know 
what's going on beneath the surface mm-hmm. uh, unless you get to know someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I think there's a very common sentiment among, among people of color in general, but I guess black people in particular, that like having feelings can be a luxury or is a luxury. Um, and when you're faced with a hostile world, you just always have to tough it out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, when you talk about your parents, when you talk about your experiences growing up, that, that narrative sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. This like stoic attitude towards, towards the people outside. Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, both of them had very tough lives growing up. My, mm-hmm. my mother grew up in Claremont, New Hampshire. Um, I, can't, I can't even imagine what that was like growing up um, back then. Uh, and, uh, and my father, I don't know very much about um, his, his life and when he was small, because mm-hmm. he never talked about it. Mm-hmm. But I know that, that his family was very poor. Um, and so, um, and he did talk at times about red lines and the depression and mm-hmm. how hard life was just a little bit. And he was also a veteran of World War II. Um, and uh, we know that the army was segregated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can, I, again, I can only imagine you know, how, how much he had to, you know, suck it up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, keep those feelings inside to not be hurt. Mm-hmm. So in terms of personal experiences of mental health, I mean, did you have any more experiences, I guess, like as you were an adult living in New York after you moved out of the house uh, that informed your, your perspective on mental health? Well, you know, actually, I go back to, to high school. I had a friend who... Um, who heard voices, mm-hmm. and uh, because when you're you're a kid, you you do have a fantasy kind of life. Sometimes uh, I thought it was very natural, normal. She was one of the people who was nice, you know, kind of nice to me, and so I spent time with her. And she later took her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother had had schizophrenia, I believe, and I think that she also did too. Um, hearing voices would suggest that, but I was. You know, it's kind of devastating mm. to to learn. And this was after I graduated from high school that that she that had happened to her. Um, in college, there were people who left school because they had, you know, people who say, "Oh, that you know, so and so had a nervous breakdown." Mm-hmm. I don't know if that happened to you when you were in college. That mm. people would leave and no one would say anything about it except you know, in whispers say mm. that, "Oh, you know, so and so, right." Yeah. Well, I mean, in college for me, a lot of people were seeing, uh, were going to mental health services. Mm-hmm. People were talking about going to counseling a lot. People would take semesters off because they'd had mm-hmm. nervous breakdowns, some other issue. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it sounds like in contrast to your experiences, what was good was that people felt like they could talk about it. Yes. And there's a lot more openness. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what was still terrible is how many people felt like they needed to see someone um, felt like they're experiencing some, some major problem that interfered for life so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just goes to show that like there's such a big problem out there that we're not properly dealing with. Right, right. Being able to talk about it is huge, mm-hmm. though. I think that I think that my generation certainly suffered for not being just because you can't if you can't talk about it. How mm-hmm. can you do anything about it? Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you learn um, what steps to take to to get help or to um, you know, move on. It's just really hard. So I'm, I'm glad things are changing. Mm-hmm. Things are really changing. The culture's changing. 
Um, and it's good that, that um, people feel like they can have these conversations. You're listening to Thrive with Shirlane McRae, a positive take on mental health. Many seniors report feeling lonely because they are homebound, physically isolated. That's why in New York City, we've made mental health support available on-site at senior centers across the five boroughs. With the support of Thrive NYC, we've placed trained counselors directly in senior centers to provide mental health support and ongoing individual counseling. We've also made trained volunteers available for in-home visits and other supportive services for homebound seniors. Any New Yorker can call 311 to learn more about our home visiting program or to connect to mental health support in a local senior center. So did you have any experiences as an adult that further informed your perspective on mental health? Yes. I remember when you and, and your sister were, were still pretty young. You were in elementary school, I think. Um, your sister was in middle school at the time, and, and um, your dad's mom got sick, your grandma, and she had a heart condition. My mother was diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma, and before we knew it, we had, you know, both of us had our, our you, me and, and um, your dad, we had our both growth moms <laughs> to take care of. <laughs> That was one of the more stressful times in my life because I was working full-time, um, obviously taking care of you and, and coordinating the care for the grandmas mm. was, was, you know, it took a lot of time um, to make sure they got to where they needed to be and have their medications and doctor appointments and food and all. It was it was really a lot to coordinate. And and people suggested I, you know, try and take it easier, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel like I could. Even though it was a blessing to be able to care for them, I felt like we were, it was it was a good thing um, mm-hmm. that we, we had the ability. It still was, it was hard work and it, and the stress did add up. Mm-hmm. So I got sick. I started feeling this pain in my stomach uh, until finally I, I had to go to a doctor. I, I thought it was going to pass, but it didn't. And I couldn't keep on going without eating. So I went to a gastroenterologist and and he urged me to have this endoscopy done. And he had a, he had a great office and said he could do it right there because he had all the equipment. Uh, he described the procedure to me and mentioned that it would include anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I looked at him and I said, anesthesia, great, please put me under. I want to sleep for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really just an offhand comment, mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of kind of comment that could be laughed off. But that doctor turned his head looked at me like with a sharpness, like his eyes like kind of like went right yeah, through yeah, me. Yeah. And it was real concern, mm. real concern for, for, for me and, and how I was feeling. And I was, we sat down, you know, I, I told him um, 
what I was going through. And um, he eventually suggested a short-term prescription for, for Paxil, which is used to treat anxiety and, and depression. And I remember that this is it's like the first time that I ever thought that that the the stress, the anxiety that I was always feeling didn't have to be my everyday normal. Mm-hmm. That oh my goodness, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. But that experience was 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 really um, a turning point in mm-hmm. my life because I had never um, I'd never taken that kind of medication and um, didn't didn't know that there was another way to move to move through life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel really bad hearing this because all I remember from those years is like going to their grandma's house mm-hmm. after school and like watching that so raven. Like just like I feel like I just was not aware of any of this. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean That's even good. so like I don't know, I guess mm-hmm. like I appreciate that mm-hmm. you I did not want to expose me to all this stuff when I was growing up, of course, but even so, it's, uh, it's difficult to process that. Mm-hmm. No, there were good times. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we love we loved the grandmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love that apple pie yeah, that Grandma yeah. Cat made all the time and the blueberry pie that Grandma Maria would make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we, had, we, had, we certainly had fun times together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was... It was a tough time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have both. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. Right. I know that when you were putting together Thrive NYC, you began talking to all these people, uh, mental health professionals, doctors, just average New Yorkers. Uh, what was the reaction to this plan program? And what do you hear from all these people? Well, it was important to us to talk to as many different kinds of people as possible because we wanted... Thrive to be a reflection of, of what people want, what people you know, what people see is missing, and and so eleven months is a is a long time to to just have these conversations. But it was is really fantastic. Mm-hmm. People were so appreciative. First of all, that we were that we were even talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what kind of reaction we were going to get. Uh, and so to get this warm reception, to get this enthusiasm, to get people coming out and and joining in these town halls and roundtables uh, was was pretty amazing. <laughs> it really was like here we are going to talk about something that you know this this huge there's usually a huge shadow over the topic mm-hmm. and and um, and the stigma is so so large mm-hmm. um, looms. These conversations that we had around the city really clarified for me what what we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I wasn't the only one mm-hmm. um, thinking about this. Um, everywhere I went with my with my team of, of, of people, um, people said that there was a huge huge stigma around mental illness and addiction. It was not something that that they could talk about easily. Um, and it would, didn't matter whether we were talking with um, an Orthodox Jewish group or a group of Caribbean women mm-hmm. or a group um, of uh, LGBTQ uh, folks. It was people said the same thing. Well, in my community, mm-hmm. the stigma is the worst. Mm. 
<laughs> and I knew we were on to something. I knew that if we could encourage open, honest conversations mm. about mental health, about mental health services, to help people get the tools that they need to to have a good life and maintain their well-being, that it would be that we'd be doing a huge service. Mm-hmm. People were really relieved that we are finally talking about this taboo subject. I was surprised that everyone had a story mm-hmm. or stories, plural, um, usually very personal. People in their family um, who had had some kind of um, a disease, whether it was a uh, you know, low-level anxiety, a depression, or um, or a more serious mental health condition like uh, bipolar condition or, or schizophrenia. Everyone had a story, uh, and uh, it was very moving to hear people talk about how they dealt with um, the people in their lives or tried to help the people in their lives. Um, I knew that that um, that we had to do more. Uh, it was, I think it was a relief for people to have a space, a safe space where they could actually talk about these things, mm-hmm. talk about their experiences for sure, even if like we didn't have an answer for them right away, that just having these conversations really meant a lot to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that's always struck me is that whenever I've gone with you to events, you often ask this question like, have you or someone close to you dealt with a mental health issue? And everyone raises their hands like without fail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I remember the the first time I asked um, that question to an audience. I think I was in Harlem, um, and I just I, I needed to move the conversation quickly, and I so I wanted people to understand just how how common um, these different diseases are, mm-hmm. and. Telling people the statistic, you know, one in five, you know, people has a mental health condition at, at, at any given time uh, of the year. Is one in five is a lot of people, but I wanted them to feel it. So I asked them, you know, can you please raise your hands if, if you know someone or if you yourself, um, you know, has a mental health condition. When all those hands went up, I felt it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt it deeply. And I've been doing it ever since just to show people that that this is something that we all live with. It's kind of amazing to me that we could all have these powerful experiences um, that really connect us to one another because mm-hmm. it's part of the human condition, but we don't talk about it. So you are firstly in New York City, you're doing all these programs, all these public appearances, events, all this stuff. How do you manage your stress with all these responsibilities and all the work that you do? I use apps. I, mm-hmm. I discovered the Calm app mm-hmm. and Headspace, mm-hmm. and I've been experimenting with, with those. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that any time that I can take time out and just you know do some breathing and listening to uh, a meditation is really helpful. Mm. You know? And I'm getting back to reading, which I kind of got away from mm-hmm. for a while because of the pace of life. But you know, reading was all, is also something that, that, that used to help me when I was younger mm-hmm. and definitely helps now, too. What's your most favorite recent song by Travis Scott, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> Stop trying to be God. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> I cannot believe you. <laughs> I love that song. 
about trying to be God. I just, I just want to say, yeah. I walked into the kitchen the other day, uh-huh. ran into my mom. She just, no prompting, put on Travis Scott. And I was just so confused. I'm like, who told you about this? <laughs> How did you find out about it? <laughs> I have my ways, uh-huh. you know. I have my ways. What do, what do you do to thrive, Dante? <laughs> you know, listen to Travis Scott all day. Uh, <laughs> what do I do to thrive? Yeah. I feel like yeah. I feel like very simple things. Like I always make an effort to to write because mm-hmm. I think it's such an important way of processing experiences. And I feel like it's, it's so easy to get trapped in, in my head, mm-hmm. like to really dwell on the negative during, over the course of a day. And I think writing is like the most effective way of getting a little distance from things and allowing me to like think about it from a different perspective. But I always make time for my friends and make the time to laugh with them. <laughs> uh, and I also run around a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 I get a soccer ball, mm-hmm. play with friends, just kick it around myself. Like, it's also nice to not have to think for a little while. Yeah. You're very well balanced. I appreciate that. Yeah. I try to have a blend of things mm-hmm. always. So I sometimes read philosophy, sometimes I read fiction. Yeah. Love a good comic book. <laughs> <laughs> and anime? <laughs> Do love anime too. I've been outed. <laughs> Watched probably too much anime. <laughs> There was one point where I was only watching anime. I wasn't watching any like <laughs> sitcoms or anything like that. It's all right. We know we know you're a scholar. I appreciate that. <laughs> what do you want New Yorkers to know about Thrive NYC? I want New Yorkers to know that there is always hope and there's always hope, that there's always someplace to turn um, if they want someone to talk to um, about something they're going through or if it's a, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, that, that there's some place that they can call. And that number is 1-888-NYC-WELL. They can call that number. They can actually text or chat online with a counselor. And they can get connected to services, too, while they're on the, on the phone. Um, they don't have to wait. I think it's important for people to know, especially when they're they're in crisis when they're feeling like, oh my God, it can't go on any longer. But you don't have to wait until you're in crisis um, to talk to somebody mm-hmm. about what's happening in your life, whether or or somebody you're worried about. Like if you're worried that your girlfriend is drinking too much, you can call that number and and talk to a counselor. I think that's important for people to know, mm-hmm. you know, not to wait. You know, the average person who has a mental health condition waits 10 years before they reach out for help. That's the average, 10 yeah. years. That, and, and, and 10 years, you know, no disease gets better. Um, so people often are in crisis when they take that first step um, to reach out for, for, for help from someone. And it's never too late, but it just doesn't have to get to that point that if we take care of, of what we're going through, what we're feeling, you know, day by day or week by week, um, it, it's, it's, it's helpful. Please be sure to join us for future episodes of the Thrive with Shirlane McRae podcast. We'll be talking to people and experts dedicated to helping New Yorkers thrive, and you'll hear stories about connecting people to care and about the people who are leading policy change.
Thrive with Shirlane McRae. Mental health for every New Yorker.